this year, a U.S. drone strike killed two innocent hostages, one American and one Italian citizen near the Pakistan-Afghanistan border. The incident spurred outrage across the media, resulting in Obama having to apologize for the grave error. If only we could expect the same apology for the thousands of drone victims across the Muslim world since the advent of the War on Terror, most of which whose names were never so much as uttered by those who sealed their deaths. It's important to remember that in today's globalized world, almost everything is interconnected. And when it comes to war, conflicts are interlocked in disturbing ways. While people rightly demand that black lives matter in America, black lives have been forgotten in the Democratic Republic of Congo, or DRC, where nearly 6 million people have died just in the last 15 years. And every death by way of drone wouldn't be possible without turning a blind eye to the ongoing genocide there. Joining Media Roots Radio to talk about Congo's resource curse and how it relates to the perpetuation of the military-industrial complex is Kambali Musavuli, spokesperson for Friends of Congo. I'm joined now by Kambale Musavuli. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kambale. You're an incredible activist. You've been living all over the place. Um, let's talk first about what's going on in the Congo right now. Um, hundreds, if not thousands of people have been killed in recent months in clashes between the DRC army and rebel fighters. Uh, break down the factions on the ground right now. At the moment, uh, one of the main factions that was causing a lot of chaos, uh, the M23, was de- defeated uh, in 2012. Um, some of the uh, members have fled to Uganda. Uh, they fled to Rwanda as well. And we've heard now uh, there, is, there is a resurgence of violence that's taking place where last week the Rwandan uh, military crossed the border. Uh, a contact of ours in Uganda was actually contacted to join a new rebel force. Uh, sorry. Yeah, um, a contact of us was uh, reached out to in Uganda to join a new rebel force. Uh, this is how we know uh, that there may be a resurgence of a new rebel militia, which is really not new. This has been the model since the beginning of the war, uh, that the same rebels uh, change names, just as we've seen with uh, Blackwater, uh, which is now Z, where they keep changing names to confuse people about their identity. So that's one of the militia. The second one, is uh, the FDLR militia group, uh, rebel group, which uh, which is mainly composed of uh, Rwandan Hutus, who uh, some have committed genocide in Rwanda, uh, but most are young Hutus who do want to go home, but were picked up the guns to fight the regime of Rwanda, uh, the regime of Paul Kagame, uh, the Rwanda president now, who is backed, supported, and financed by the United States and uh, who does not want to deal with um, his internal problems, uh, the Hutu problem, where you cannot have a majority population being controlled by a minority and oppressing them for years with U.S. US taxpayers' money and uh, British taxpayers' money. So that's that around the the militia groups. And then you have local gangs uh, that exist, uh, but in all of these groups, the militia groups and gangs, uh, what's usually not discussed is how do these militia groups get their guns? Who's providing them with the weapons? How do we control them? We've had numerous UN reports 
documenting the illicit trade of uh, weapons and minerals in the eastern part of the Congo. Uh, people are not held accountable. I can use the example of uh, Victor Boats, who is now in jail, who was also operating in the Congo. Well, we have him in jail now, but people should know that he was shipping weapons for the Pentagon. So his so-called subsidiary company was carrying weapons for the Pentagon, but no one at the Pentagon has been arrested for that. And Victor Booth was also active in weapon sales in the Congo in the uh, early 2000s. So that's what I usually try to share with people. While we may have these local thugs with guns and you know killing people, but we don't talk about those who armed them, who uh, and many, many times those who armed them are here in the West. Talk about the leadership right now under Joseph Kabila. What is just life like for the average Congolese person in the country? The Congolese have a big challenge in Joseph Kabila. You no, know, he's uh, history. I mean, his story doesn't hold up. But you know, I'll share with you how he ended up becoming the president of the Congo. In 1996, there was a rebellion in the Congo supported by uh, Rwanda and Uganda, uh, which toppled the regime of Mobutu, who was a long-time dictator in the Congo. After they toppled the regime, uh, Rwanda and Uganda installed a leader named Laurent Desiré Kabila. He was president from 1997 up until 2001 when he was assassinated. Uh, when he was assassinated, his so-called son, Joseph Kabila took power, uh, which is a problem because uh, at the time he took power, Congo also had a constitution. The constitution says that when the president dies, the president of the Senate becomes the president of the nation. Lo uh, Joseph Kabila was not a member of parliament, was definitely not a senator, nor the president of the Senate. But somehow, he became the president of the Congo. And I, called, I always have insisted that in 2001, after the assassination of Laurent Desiré Kabila, there was a military coup where a guy by the name of Joseph Kabila, who called himself the son of Laurent Desiré Kabila, became the president of the Congo. From that time on, uh, the West has uh, played tactically in his supporting him. Uh, I believe they did not like Laurent Desiré Kabila, he had quote-unquote communist tendencies. He was discussing things such as nationalizing Congo's resources, uh, using agrarian reform to make Congo the breadbasket of Africa, and um, canceling Western mining contracts um, because he said the contract that he signed as a rebel is different now because he is now the president, he should come to the front doors and many other issues. You know, so while he was president, the year after he, he was president, rebellion started, which caused around 2001 for him to be assassinated. So from that angle now, we're speaking about Joseph Kabila. He's now the president of the Congo in 2001. Many rebellions in the country. 2002, the Apis Accords, the West sides with Kabila. The, he was 29 in um, 2001 when he became president. They're seeing him, a young man, whom they can control. In 2006, after many peace accords and Congolese trying to have uh, now some form of government, we finally had an organization of an election, a presidential election. 
that was a very contested election. Um, Kabila was declared a winner. Uh, the runner-up, uh, Jean-Pierre Bemba, who is right now at the International Criminal Court uh, in The Hague, uh, was the he was the runner-up. Uh, he did not want to concede. There was a little bit of uprising at the time, and the United States decided to side with Kabila and make him the president of the Congo at the time. But I will bring up a story that many people do not know. When um, the uprising um, after the elections to, took place in 2006, uh, Jean-Pierre Mbemba was at The Hague. He refused to concede. So Western ambassadors, including a former US ambassador, William Swing, went to visit Jean-Pierre Mbemba in his compound in Kinshasa. They went in and they had discussion to convince him to leave power. Joseph Kabila considered that. He did not know the context. He actually thought that the West was switching side. So while over 12, over a dozen ambassadors, including a former US ambassador, was in the house with Jean-Pierre Mbemba, Kabila bombed the house. Whoa. They all had to go to the bunker. And William Swing had to pick up his phone to call Kabila and tell him, we are in this building. Are you crazy? Now, the reason why I'm sharing this story is this is an incident that can be found. How Joseph Kabila bombed foreign diplomats in the Congo, and he's still the president of the Congo today. No one held him accountable for it. They rubbed it off as this nev never happened. But you can find information about the bombing in 2006 of Western diplomats in the Congo who were discussing with Jean-Pierre Mbemba. So that's why we know that uh, the West sided with him in 2006. The next election was in 2011, uh, which pretty much gave him his second term, and our constitution only allows him to be there for, uh, for two terms. Another very contested election, uh, where in some areas he won with over 100%. And um, unfortunately, um, the U.S. sided with him again. And uh, other countries around the world was waiting for the U.S. position on the elections. The result was published in December, um, the first week of December 2011. On February 15, 2012, that's when the United States officially recognized Kabila as the president of the Congo. So for almost a month and a half, the whole entire world was waiting. Will the U.S. recognize this election or not? Um, Western nations, some of the Western nations were saying already that these elections were not credible, but no one actually took the bold stand. Um, but that statement of the U.S. support came in Kinshasa, not in international media. So the U.S. ambassador in Kinshasa called the local press and made a statement in front of them that the United States is recognizing Kabila as the president of the Congo for the next five years, which also gave him legitimacy. But there were people inside and outside of the Congo throughout this entire time. They have been contesting Kabila. Why are they contesting him? One, they know that Kabila does not represent the will of the people. He came with, uh, through the battle of the gun. He has killed many uh, people in the country during the war, even till, until now. He has uh, stolen 
money from state coffers, uh, some of uh, the estimates of his wealth is over $10 billion so far. There was a uh, an article, I think it was on The Economist, if I'm not, uh, actually it was either The Wall Street Journal or The Economist, I have to check again, where they estimate his wealth to be about $10 billion already. Um, somehow, it seems to be okay for Western nations to see that wealth, but whenever uh, he's no longer going to be president or he's either sent to The Hague, all the money again going to disappear and it's not going to be returned to the Congolese people. So the Congolese people do not see themselves in this leader, and they are hoping that in 2016, when the next election comes up, he doesn't run again. And that's the challenge we have right now. He cannot run in 2016. The Congolese constitution says that the president of the Congo can only have two terms. The same constitution also says that the, uh, the article on presidential terms cannot be amended. So if they try to amend it, they are doing something illegal. So that's why they've been toying with many ideas of how can they extend this power. And the people have been going out in the street against Kabila because of that, because he doesn't want to leave power. He's going to be 45 in 2016. So he sees himself very young. He has taken money. And many people in the Congo also believe that the silence of the Congolese government around the atrocities taking place in the Congo, the inadequacy of the government to deal with the issue is also complicity, allowing Rwanda and Uganda to reign free in the East. Amazing, and it's going to be really amazing to see what the U.S. government does to respond when Kabila does you know, try to extend his, his reign, because I'm sure he's not going to go down without a fight. Um, you know, and, and let's talk about that uprising of young people that shut down a city of 15 million people back in January. Of course, zero coverage, right? I mean, I didn't even know about that until you just told me. What happened here? And talk about what the military did to actually cover up this horrific uh, event that took place. Congolese government has been playing with many ideas of how they can extend power for Joseph Kabila. And one of their latest schemes has been, since they cannot change the constitution, they can introduce an electoral law that will extend these uh, terms de facto. Uh, by that, I mean uh, they, were, they introduced a, a bill in, for the electoral, to amend the electoral law, stipulating that before we have presidential elections, we should have a, na a national census. Uh, Congo has 71 million people. Congo is the size of Western Europe, so it's a huge country. It's one-fourth the size of the U.S. Yes, it's the second biggest African country uh, by size and uh, fourth by population. So it's a very huge country with less infrastructure. So to do a census in the Congo today, even if we started today, it was probably going to take about four to five years. The election is scheduled for 2016. So by them introducing that bill, they were extending his power, saying that you know the presidential elections will happen uh, after uh, the census is done. So that angered the population. And on January 19th, um, before even I go to January 19th, on January 17th is the anniversary of the assassination of Patrice Lumumba who was brutally assassinated on January 17th, 1961, with the help of the CIA. On January 17th, which this year, it was a Saturday, 
right? And it was also a national holiday in the Congo, like a federal holiday. The Senate, uh, uh, the uh, I'm sorry, the House, the, our Parliament, had a session on a national holiday on a Saturday on Lumumba's anniversary, uh, anniversary, the commemoration of his death, in the Parliament to pass this law at 2300 is 11 p.m., right? 11.23 p.m., they passed the law on a Saturday. It's the Patriot Act here. Exactly, exactly. They're learning from, I'm pretty sure they are learning from the United States, right? So people did not even have the time to do anything to hold the members of parliament accountable because who would think that they will meet that late on a Saturday. No one's supposed to work on a federal holiday, right? So on Monday, after so two days after January 17th, uh, now it's January 19th, the youth took it to the street. In the morning, I don't think that the government realized that people actually were ready for the revolution. Mm-hmm. I did not realize that mm-hmm. because I, I just thought that this would be a regular protest. The protests grew numbers, and they were peaceful. The protests became violent when the military started shooting live bullets at protesters. And many of the protesters we spoke with, and we, uh, some of our members, uh, friends of the Congo, were actually on the ground during that time. They shared with us that caused anger in the youth to see their friends right beside them falling down and dying and they start retaliating with whatever they had, be it rocks, be it burning tires to block traffic. And it grew numbers. So the Congolese government did what they learned from the West. They shut off SMS in the whole country, and they shut off communication. So people on the ground could not communicate for a day. Then they shut off internet. And that's something that you hear of in other oppressive countries, but to actually see it also happen in Congo, that they shut it off, was quite, quite interesting. And then they continued to, the military continued to kill uh, protesters, but people didn't let, let down. Uh, they continued to go out. Uh, four days into the protest, uh, the Senate now had what the lower house signed on that s- uh, Saturday. And as um, they sold the bill, they rewrote it to remove a section of the census. And this was the first time to, have, to see that when people went out in the street and protested, the government listened, at least in the, on the Senate side. They had to listen because nobody could go outside anymore. The youth were in the street. They were actually fighting the military now. Unfortunately, scores died. And... Um, they were forced by the popular will of the people to not pass that law. And that's actually what happened. The people forced the government not to pass that law. So now they're thinking about another strategy. But now, during the, the killing, you know, there, there were many people killed, uh, many people wounded, sent to the hospital. The military decided to go to the hospital, and they were snatching dead bodies, stealing dead bodies in the morgue, um, to lower the counts of deaths. So Human Rights Watch um, published their numbers that said that there were 42 deaths during the protest. The Congolese government said that there were only 12. 
and uh, and there's, there's been this mystery about these dead bodies that they were stolen. Uh, and then um, it, during that time, about 400 young people were arrested. Uh, they've been in prison since. So about uh, three weeks ago, uh, in a neighborhood in Kinshasa, uh, people start smelling a foul odor in the neighborhood. Apparently, uh, people in military uniform came to the neighborhood, dug a hole, put bodies in there. They contacted the UN uh, in Kinshasa and other human rights organizations. They came and they saw the mass grave. This actually was a mass grave. And in the mass graves, uh, in the mass grave, there was 425 dead bodies in it. Letters went to the Congolese government to explain what is happening. We need to exhume this body and do an investigation. The Congolese government has said that these dead bodies are bodies of fetuses and dead bodies that no one has claimed in hospital in Kinshasa. I would oh, so you don't claim a body in a hospital, so we just dump it in a mass grave. So that, that's how much they value human life. That's, that's great. And it happens to be also the first time this has happened in the country because where are the other mass graves where you did the same action before? Why just now that this becomes a practice of uh, burying people in a mass grave? So I'm, I'm very confident that unfortunately these dead bodies are bodies of the protesters. Mm -hmm. uh, what is even saddening is that the world doesn't know this is going on that uh, we have a vibrant youth movement in the heart of Africa, in the Congo, of young people fighting to democratically change the country. We have no guns. They say, we're going to change our country. We are being killed. But if they pick up a gun, they get uh, rockets or any um, military equipment, and they become the so-called rebels, that's when you're going to see the Western support. That's what the United States like. No, we're going to go and support these rebels uh, as they try to top a regime. But those who are fighting with popular will to change the country, you know, beside the U.S. or anyone else around the world, uh, they do not know that it's happening. And that's, that's my call to ordinary people to, to come on the side of the Congolese as they fight to change the affairs of the country. Wow, that, that's an incredible story, and it's amazing that people are stepping up. And you know, uh, you know, we just saw in Burkina Faso, obviously, uh, you know, ousted twenty-seven year leader there. So things are really moving on the ground there, and it's scaring the fuck out of the establishment. That's for sure. I wanted to paint a picture for people who are listening, um, because Africa is so foreign to a lot of people, and it's just completely off the radar. Talk about what life is like, just like, you know, in terms of electricity, water. Um, how is it just to be a, a Congolese citizen? Your question is very powerful because it's like uh, two sides to the story, right? Congo is arguably the richest country on the planet. It has everything you can think of. Gold, diamond, copper, cobalt, zinc, magnesium. The uranium that was used to bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki came from the Congo. So we have all these resources that's existent on the ground in the Congo. Then people live in abject poverty. Uh, so they, they are impoverished, mainly because of many factors, right? One, uh, World Bank and IMF, uh, neoliberal policies that push on the Congolese government. Um, the resource war being waged in the East by Rwanda and Uganda 
who are U.S. allies on a so-called war on terror, who are looting Congo's resources like there is no tomorrow with no accountability. Uh, the local elite in Congo uh, who are also looting, you know, so I have to call them out for that as well, about how they are you know, causing chaos, also oppressing the people. So the, on the daily basis, you know, we have 71 million Congolese. Half of the population is under the age of 18. Uh, the majority are Congolese women. And the Congolese live with less than a dollar a day, which is a big contrast. How can you live with less than a dollar a day when probably six feet under your, f your foot, you have $1,000 worth of diamond? Now, so who's controlling that trade that's making the richest people on earth be the poorest? Antwerp, if you go to Belgium, you'll see who controls the diamond industry. Even if you go to New York, you'll see who controls that, where those where these resources don't get the benefit. So they live with less than a dollar a day. They don't have access to education, uh, formal education. Uh, the education system was completely destroyed during the war. Uh, the infrastructure also. Um, and they don't have access to electricity. Less than 5% of the country has access to electricity. But here's how crazy this is. The Congo has a dam called Inga. The Inga dam has the potential to provide electricity to the entire African continent, southern Europe, and have a little bit left for the Middle East. Do you know where the electricity from the dam goes? Mining. Uh, centers in Zimbabwe, in Namibia, in South Africa. They have lines coming out of the Congo, exporting Congo's electricity outside of the Congo. And there is now talk of having another dam called Inga 3, where the South African government and Congolese government signed a memorandum of understanding to build this dam that has the same potential but the people will not get access to that. And that's the battle. So the battle is not about building a hospital in Congo or helping orphans. The battle is to make sure that at the end of our fight, that the Congolese are determining their own affairs in Congo. That's the mistake we made 100 years ago. Because 100 years ago, Congo was at the same place. We had King Leopold of Belgium, who controlled the Congo. 10 to 15 million people died. There was the first international Western advocacy, actually I'm saying Western, it was an international advocacy. The first human rights advocacy that we can record was around the Congo, from uh, the late 1800 to 1910. Ordinary people from around the world rose up to denounce Leopold II and what he was doing. They succeeded because on November 15th, 1908, Congo was taken away from Leopold. But the mistake they made was they didn't give the Congo back to the Congolese. They gave it to Belgium. So that's what we're fighting for. We're fighting for that at the end of this fight, we're not giving Congo to an international cartel. We're making sure that young Congolese who are from that country, who control the country, who, are, who see the interests of the people, will say, I want the Congolese to have clean water. Why? Because Congo, Congo's river, he is 42% of Africa remnant freshwater reserves. Just the Congo River, 42% of fresh water on the African continent is in that river. The Congo forest itself, which is the second lung of the world after the Amazon, is a big forest that has a pharmaceutical potential, I'll argue, to cure many diseases. 
but we haven't even explored the potential of the Congo. And we can explore the potential of the Congo and us benefiting for that potential until the Congolese people control their country. Yeah, I mean, right now, there's obviously the focus on just extracting all of the resources uh, to get the bottom line of these multinational corporations. And yeah, it is about putting the resources in the hands of the Congolese people. You know, I, I'm so disgusted with, with people who um, are, are so anti-immigration and anti-refugees, and, and they don't understand how all of this connects. I mean, we're talking about a global system of neoliberal extraction you know, all of this race at the bottom shit. And then on top of that, just capitalism and then hegemony, imperialism, the backing and propping up of these dictators. Like, I mean, I just posted these photos of all of these, uh, these devastating photos of these um, refugees leaving and, and on these migrant boats and dying in the hundreds, if not thousands. And, and people are like, how is this like imperialism's fault? And it's like, look, what is... Like, do you think that these people are electing these dictators? How are these dictators in power? I mean, talk about how much aid and support from the West Kabila is getting right now on an annual basis. And then we'll go back to the last couple of decades and how this all happened. Yeah, so you made an important point that I also want to share uh, that perspective. That if I had the choice to live in a country where the weather doesn't get below zero, uh, we lack choose to be in uh, Chicago or in Maine, uh, the answer is no, I'm not going to be there. I'm going to be where it's sunny, the weather is nice, you know, eight months of rainy season every two, three days or at least once a week, and then dry season where the degree gets below 70. No, not below 70, that's seven, 65 to 70 is how cold it gets. That's what, uh, where I will be. So uh, most migrants um, are not in... Um, they don't put themselves in precarious situations by choice. It's, uh, they're forced to go to the extreme, unfortunately, uh, because of political reasons. And most of the time, it's uh, Western imperialism uh, imposing leaders who do not provide them with the economic prosperity they need in their own countries. Uh, for Kabila, the you know, Congolese government uh, is kind of funny. When every year, when the Congolese government come up with the budget, the national budget uh, that they're gonna run with, I always laugh because people don't understand numbers. Do you know that the country the size of Europe, the Congo, mm-hmm. their national budget is $9 billion. Washington DC, a city with about 500,000 people, their budget is $8 billion. It's a very tiny city. So Congo is the size of Western Europe the national budget is nine billion, and you hear the prime minister discussing how they're gonna even use the money. Like, it's impossible uh, for them to do anything with that money. And then they tell you that eighty percent of that funding came through the Bretton Woods institutions, such as the World Bank. So then, the World Bank tells you which educational pro- uh, project you are going to do how much money you have to allocate for health, because it's their priorities. Let's say our priority this year is HIV AIDS, make sure that the funding we're providing you is going to what pay for, here are your American counterparts who are going to bring you the medicine, make sure you pay them with the money that we gave you. So it's just a revolving door where the money comes and go back to those who gave you the money. So that's that, one. Um, we do have the money to control 
our country, but we don't call, we're not sovereign. I mean, Freeport McMoran, which is a copper and gold company out of Phoenix, Arizona, they have the biggest copper reserve in the world. And cobalt, you have private military contractors in the Tenkefungurume mine in the Congo protecting that mine. And the mine is twice the size of New York City. That's how big that mine is. So it's a big piece of land, biggest copper reserve in the world. The contract, when you read it, is Freeport McMoran and London is the John Project. London is Canadian. So the Americans and the Canadians are getting 80% profit on the mine, and the Congolese government get 20%. That's ridiculous. Who signed it? Joseph Kabila. He signed it in, in April of 2011. The moment he signed that contract, I knew that the United States is going to support him for the election in, in November of 2011, mm -hmm. a few months later. So that, that is what's happening, where they provide them with just enough resources so that the local elite can fly out of the country, buy cars or things for themselves, put money in Swiss bank accounts, but the value of the money they receive does not represent actually money that the country needs to develop. How can that change? I mean, it's sound, sounding like a rhetoric, right? Saying that to have the people who have the interests of their own in power. But we've seen it. When Chavez used a military solution to the problem of his country, it didn't work. He said, I'm going to step back. When he was freed, I'm going to go back to the people. He worked with ordinary citizens working through agrarian reform and many civic uh, projects, educating the Venezuelan people about their rights. They elected him democratically. And when he became president, and I think it's one of the rarest times in history where a US-backed coup only lasted 48 hours. But it was the people who brought him back to people. Uh, to power. So that's what I'm hoping that can happen in Congo. That we, we don't, I don't want to see my children ever discuss U.S. policy. That U.S. policy should be irrelevant to the future of the Congo because Congo's policy is irrelevant to American politics. I mean, American politicians are not worrying about a Congolese politician named Martin Fayulu in Congo and how he's running for elections there. So why should it be the other way? That's my hope, to see that each country is independent, are worrying about their own affairs, and are providing for their people, and we can collaborate, but not impose the Western imperialism where we have to buy goods from you, we have to get everything from you, and if we say no to you, we die. Wow, I mean, especially since it's so resource-rich that the, there is so much capacity for self-growth and evolution uh, in terms of the people's will. Um, but of course, Venezuela is the one that doesn't have fair elections, right? So, you know, here the, here's the Congo, Kabila, um, all the West is just backing his elections. But then Venezuela, the fairest elections in the world, according to the Jimmy Carter Center, you have Obama declaring a national security threat. You just cannot make this up, man. I feel like I'm living in the twilight zone. Um, but let's talk about like, okay, another another kind of talking point is um, why don't they have democracy? You know, like, why don't they have democracy? All these people in Africa or the Middle East and all this, like, moral imposition of how the West acts imposed on that region of the world, not understanding the fact that 
Congolese people actually did democratically elect a leader back in 1960 after, you know, of course, it started as a Belgium colony. Um, back in 1960, Patrice Lumumba, as you've been talking about, I mean, talk about how the significance of this election. Of course, at the same time, Che Guevara was in the Congo with the contingent of men trying to help their revolution, which ultimately failed. Talk about this whole um, movement. Why Cuba to the Congo? Why was the revolt unsuccessful? And how significant was that moment in time? 1960 uh, was a wave. There was a wave of revolution across the African continent. And I think that wave uh, scared um, the West. I mean, it's reminding me of now, right? But I don't think the connection has been made clearly because now we have a revolution in the United States, in Ferguson, in Baltimore. We had it also in some cities in Florida. We're seeing all these uprisings taking place, but this uprising ha has not, um, the organizer have not well connected internationally. Now, if you think about the 1960, with the civil rights movement here, the Black Panthers actually also challenging the system here, also around the globe, capitalism was in danger. Because African nationals saying, we want to be independent too, while people here in this country say, we also want to be independent. So they had to have a global strategy that people do not actually put Contel Pro and the assassination project of the CIA as the same thing. They had an internal solution for killing and destroying movement in this country. And they also had the CIA operating in you know, Allende's um, assassination, Patrice Lumumba's assassination, and many other uh, leaders around the world who the US said those were threats to the, the system. So with Patrice Lumumba, he came from a movement. So his assassination wasn't just him. They, they stayed in the Congo to destroy the movement even after his death. In the 1950s, you had this wave of young Congolese who happened to have had the opportunity to visit uh, Belgium. When they visited Belgium, the contrast that they saw was the equality among people, the Belgian people. And then they were asking themselves, if the Belgians that I'm seeing in Brussels are this way, why are the ones in the Congo are beating me to death, are making me become the driver? I say, in the Congo, I'm the cook and driver, but I'm in Brussels, I'm not. But they have others who, are, who still are seen as human beings. So they start questioning the whole notion of being colonized. Why are we colonized? That's slavery. And there was this awakening in the African youth, especially Congolese youth at the time, and they mobilized. They mobilized successfully, and Lumumba is particular, because Congo is so big, and we have many ethnicities. He was the only political party that mobilized across ethnic lines. Mouvement National Congolais, the Congolese National Movement, that was the name of his political party, had no ethnic tendencies. And that's the uh, party that won the election. And I use that as an example because of the whole um, ethnic conflict, uh, these people are in these tribes. And I always challenge that notion. I say in 1960, the Congolese people did not vote a tribe. Right. They voted for MNC, which showed that they are not um, tribalistic. 
if I may uh, say, that they show that they know what's good for them, and whenever they present it with what's good for them, they will support it. And that's how he won. But as he won, he made, he made it very clear to Western powers that he wanted Congo's resources to benefit the Congolese. That's where the struggle happened, because you have Dwight Eisenhower, who is fighting the USSR, Russia, saying that I can only have cobalt in uh, USSR and Congo. At that time, the, those were the only two places you could get cobalt from. And Congo was controlled by the Belgians, who have always been a broker to the US. It was the Belgians who provided the US with uranium to bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the Belgians still continue to provide copper and cobalt reserve during the uh, World War uh, II. So you can't have a young Congolese, 34 years old, telling you, I don't want you to get access to the minerals in my country. I want the Congolese to have clean water. I want Congolese to have electricity. I want them to have a home and education. That is secondary or even tertiary to Western powers' interest in, in Africa or in the Congo. So they planned to actually assassinate him. And as they assassinated him, I mean, he was deposed within weeks of him becoming prime minister on, in, on June 30th, 1960. Uh, he was assassinated on January 17, 1961, in the most grotesque way, where after he was killed by a death um, firing squad, he was buried because of the fear that people will use where he was buried as a memorial site, they dug his body out of the grave, chopped him off in pieces, put his body in acid, and made sure that his body disappeared. And it is so bad that one of the mercenaries, he's passed away now, who was among the people who chopped off his body in a documentary on Lumumba in Belgium, they interviewed him, and he said on live TV, that many Congolese, including myself, had to watch, where he said, some Congolese don't believe that Lumumba is dead. Some actually believe he's going to come back as Christ, uh, resurrect. But I tell you, if he comes back, he's going to be missing a tooth. And he take his hands, put in his pocket, pulls out a tooth, and show it to the camera. And he said, that's Lumumba's tooth. And we all were watching TV. Can you imagine the anger to see someone speak about the killing of a prime minister of a sovereign country and you have kept his tooth and you're showing it on TV and no one has been arrested up until today about Lumumba's death. But they killed him. But what they didn't know, as they say, right? They kill people, but they don't know that who they're killing as seeds. Because as they killed him, years later, people are still talking about Lumumba. People know his ideas, his vision, what he wanted for Congo, what he wanted for Africa. But systematically after his death, they went after any Congolese youth who had any ideas close to Lumumba. They all were sidelined, they all were removed. And there were rebellions after his death in many groups of rebels start fighting the regime that was imposed after the assassination of Lumumba. Because what happened was, 
after Omar was assassinated, the United States supported Mobutu to become the president of the Congo. But from 1960 to 65, he was running the military with U.S. support. And uh, during that time, Che Guevara, who really admired Lumumba in many of his speeches, he spoke about these young Africans who are changing the African continent. And he took it to another level because um, Che Guevara wasn't Cuban. But he explained by his actions what internationalism meant. He didn't just speak about it. He actually lived it. So his second international action was Congo, that while talking about the death of uh, Patrice Lumumba was one thing, but he needed to show the world that even if I'm Argentinian, I can go to the Congo. And he did so. He met some Congolese in Congo Brazzaville, the other Congo, in a conference. Uh, they shared with him they were connected to one of the rebel groups fighting Mobutu. Uh, he saw the movement as fighting Western imperialism, and he said, I'm going to come and help. And he left um, everything. He spoke to Fidel, said, this is what I'm going to do. And he mobilized uh, a couple of dozens of Cubans, blacks, and white Cubans to go with him. And he went to help uh, these people who were fighting. Um, Laurent Desiré Kabila, who did the uprising in 1996 with the Rwandans, is one of the people who connected with Che Guevara back then. Um, as you read uh, Che Guevara's uh, memoir of the Congo about some of the challenges that he faced, you know, he said things that the people that he connected with were not serious about revolution. They were not politically educated in ideology of change. They were seeing fighting Mobutu as one thing, but not understanding the global network. Um, they did not have discipline, which is, of course, those are the individuals that he connected with. But he says something very profound, because he connected with Laurent Desiré Kabila. And he said, if the future leaders of the Congo are like Laurent Desiré Kabila, Congo will be in bondage for the next 100 years. So guess who the United States chose to lead the rebellion in 1996? Laurent Désiré Kabila was the face of the movement of Rwanda and Uganda's invasion to the Congo. Che Guevara already saw it back then. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. used what he wow. said to actually bring the so-called new rebellion to the Congo, to Tapo Mobutu, as a legit legitimate movement. Yeah, so basically <laughs> everything that's happened there um, since since that revolution has been really shady um, and a lot of political interference there. And, and of course, it was during Mobutu's rule that the Congressional Budget Office in 1982 released the report entitled Cobalt Policy Options for a Strategic Mineral. Now, I know that you've been talking about cobalt a lot, but let's break it down for the layman, um, including myself. What the hell is cobalt? What exactly is it? What is it used for? Um, what exact military equipment is it used for? Well, it's something I had to learn when I came to the United States. I didn't even know what the term strategic mineral was. Um, cobalt is a strategic mineral. Um, and I'm not saying it's in a literal sense, strategic mineral. It's a policy term. Uh, there are about 17 strategic minerals. And strategic minerals are minerals that the United States does not have. 
and are also a danger to its uh, U.S. national security, meaning that if they do not have access to uh, strategic minerals, it can cause a military um, crisis, how to make weapons and so on. So cobalt is one of them. You know, the United States does not have deposit of cobalt. Congo is the number one producer of cobalt in the world right now. You know, no one makes more cobalt than we do. Uh, and the number one exporter of cobalt uh, in the Congo is the United States. So our cobalt comes straight directly to the U.S. Uh, China does, but in a very small scale. Uh, so co cobalt was also at the center of the discussion of the removal of Lumumba in uh, 1960, because at the time it was Russia and Congo, uh, USSR and Congo, where you could get access to that. And it was important for them to control it. Now, the document you are actually uh, referring to is a very important document, the cobalt policy, because there was a problem with cobalt that many Americans probably do not know. That they, they did not probably notice how Congo affected them. In the 1970s, we had two rebellions in the Congo, Shaba one and Shaba two. These two rebellions caused disruption of cobalt production. How did Americans feel it? In 1980, there was actually shortage of color TV in the U.S. Many people do not know why there were shortage of uh, color TVs. They have no context whatsoever why there was that shortage. But also, it affected the military. So U.S. policymakers start worried. Uh, their worry was, if we do not have access to cobalt, what do we have to do? So they asked the Congressional Budget Office to write a policy document of, what do we do in times of shortage of cobalt? And that's what the, the document did. In 1982, they published this document where they clearly said Zaire, which is Congo today, and Zambia is where the cobalt copper belt is. That area controls about 60% of the world reserve. So Congo has 32% of the world's reserve of cobalt. And the document clearly says we have to have access to cobalt. If we do not have access to cobalt from the Congo, it poses two vulnerability. The number one vulnerability is military in nature. And word for word, in time of war, we will not be able to wage a war with shortage of stockpile of cobalt. And the second uh, vulnerability is economic, which Americans felt by shortage of color TV. So when the document came up in 1982, the same year where the World Bank and the IMF started writing documents about Mobutu's pilfering state coffers for his own personal gain, in 1982 already documentation was showing that he was taking World Bank's money for his own personal interest, the United States decided to close their eyes and say, we need Mobutu to get access to cobalt. Mm -hmm and supported him until the, war, uh, the fall of the Wall of Berlin in 1990. So that's a determining document in the support of a dictator who was killing his population, stealing funds from state coffers. And we Congolese have been asked to pay back as 
a depth of the nation when they knew exactly where they went. But that's what the document did. And that's the importance of cobalt. If you know a country like the Congo, where the U.S. has unfettered access to cobalt today, and you are the president of the United States, of course you will say, I want to control that, right? But what is it used for? You cannot send a space shuttle without cobalt. Missiles use cobalt. Uh, microwave, I mean, electronics in general uses cobalt. Even drones. There is no way a drone will ever fly without cobalt. Ask Lockheed Martin, where do they get the cobalt from? I guarantee you it comes from the Congo. I guarantee that. But the world does not know. Cobalt is in Congo. And the question sometimes I pose the activists fighting the drone war or Afghans, when will they unite with the Congolese miners to do strikes, to disrupt cobalt production and say that we are humans too, that we should not be killed by these drones and Congolese should not be dying in these mines, digging these minerals or being displaced from their lands size of two New York cities to just dig a big hole to get minerals. It's an incredible backstory that everyone needs to know, Kambale. Uh, um, in 2010, of course, the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform Bill had a section that promised to, quote, monitor and stop commercial activities involving the natural resources of the DRC that contribute to the armed activities of armed groups and human rights violations. Great. So, of course, you would think that cobalt would be one of these minerals if they really did care about halting this ongoing genocide and this horrific civil war. But, of course, it was not named as one of the four conflict minerals classified in the report, I mean, blatant, you know, disregard for the most deadly trade there. Um, you mentioned it, there's a lot of actors involved here, China, but of course the U.S. is is leading the pack here. The fact that they actually said that they can't wage war without cobalt should be of grave concern to everyone when realizing why the U.S. is continuing to turn a blind eye to the atrocities going on in the Congo. Um, and yeah, I wanted you to talk really quickly about the mine because there's it goes beyond just the cobalt. I mean, of course, there's already politicians and political actors who are directly, you know, working in that revolving door. Just talk very briefly about Melissa Sanderson, the VP of International Affairs at Freeport. Um, you know, she was a political counselor to the State Department for over two decades before joining the company. And she was at the charged affairs at the U.S. Embassy in the Congo. I mean, are, is this just the way the system works? Like, talk about who this person is and how, uh, like, common it is to have these kind of entrenched relationships. That is uh, Washington, D.C., right? This uh, ancestral uh, relationship with politicians moving from think tanks to government offices. And uh, it happens on the African continent also. I mean, Medicine Center's story is quite disturbing. You know, uh, a former government official uh, at the U.S. Embassy in Kinshasa who facilitated uh, access to that mining contract that Freeport has in Congo. And she was rewarded by a position. You know, first she was the director of Freeport Congo, and today she's the VP of Freeport McMoran. And no one has asked questions about how did she end up there? You know, what expertise does she have into mining? She's a charge of uh, political affairs, right? So what does political affairs have to do with copper? 
and cobalt. Uh, people are not asking these uh, these questions that you know she she just was uh, airlifted to a position um, because of um, what is it called political gains, uh, pretty much. Um, thankfully, to the then writer reports, that's how we came to find out about this uh, relationship with uh, Freeport McMoran. And the more disturbing thing uh, that I've noticed in the human rights sector is usually whenever there are discussions about human rights and issues, political issues in Congo, Freeport is in attendance in these meetings. And you look around, you say, okay, you have NGO, NGO, mining company. Why are you here? Uh, you know, so it's, it's been a challenge to even um, like expose Freeport because it's, it's a big corporation that can destroy you because you speak up. So they will ignore uh, the activists at the moment you start becoming bigger and bigger, they'll, make, they'll shut you down. But we, we're not asking the questions about, like, can we find out which American politician is vested, uh, has stocks in Freeport McMoran? Actually, we can. I found out that Susan Rice had $200,000 of stocks in Freeport because they have to disclose that information. And when you look at her financial uh, disclosure, she has stocks from Freeport. Um, I do know Freeport funds McCain. Cin uh, C uh, no, I'm saying C Cindy McCain. I'm talking about the John McCain, the senator. But now when you think about John McCain now, that you may think this is unrelated, his wife, Cindy McCain, runs the McCain Institute. Do you know what the McCain Institute does? They bring young Congolese youth leaders to Phoenix, Arizona for leadership training. I would participate if I knew that Cindy McCain was a leader. <laughs> but I have not participated, and over the few years, I have seen young Congolese leaders flown into Phoenix, Arizona, living here for a year in the McCain Institute. I wouldn't be surprised, I've not dug in much to see the support, but I wouldn't be surprised that them flying into Phoenix, Arizona for the Freeport McMoran project, uh, for the Cindy McCain, um, McCain Institute, is somehow related to Freeport. Why do I say that? Phoenix, Arizona is the headquarters of Freeport McMoran, surprisingly. So everything is happening in Arizona these, these days when it comes to the Congo. And that's something that needs to be looked at more um, about uh, Freeport's role in the Congo, how they're able to operate uh, at this level, how they have a contract where Freeport and London are receiving 80% and Congo get 20%. And one no one is holding them accountable for private military contractors who have killed mine workers, who have a displaced population. Uh, and we even got engaged because we were able to get in touch with some of the investors, uh, shareholders. We provided them with the inf uh, information of the abuse that was taking place with the lo local population. They've shared with the investors that we're just a rogue organization. What we're saying is not true. They need to know who we are referring to. Uh, then at that level, when the shareholders came back to us, we provided them with all the information. Uh, we detailed our contacts on the ground that, you know, you have now to disclose your, your information. You have a backing of um, the shareholders. 
They did. And then Freeport at the end of the discussion said, we will discuss with them in Lubumbashi, Congo, on the ground, rather than discussing it at the meeting. And nothing has ever happened to that discussion. And we continue to put in pressure. We will not stop because uh, we know why the U.S. supports Kabila. We know that they support him because he provides access to minerals such as cobalt. Um, and he signed a contract and he provided a security that we will have access to this uh, for a while. And now there is a popular uprising, and the U.S. is positioning itself now uh, to be at the support of the popular uprising as well. And that's something that we have to watch out because they have been engaged in co-opting the youth movement as well. While I may say uh, that they've been engaged, um, now we're seeing small organizations being popped up by USAID uh, saying that they are youth leaders in the Congo. And people should ask. Why are these USAID-supported youth leaders receiving money from the U.S. to fight Kabila for change? The USAID is literally like a CIA front group now. It's been used to subvert just democratic processes across the planet for for decades, actually. Um, Very disturbing because it undermines actual aid efforts, of course. But let's go back to the crimes that you're talking about and the U.S. turning a blind eye really quickly because I don't think people actually realize how bad it is and how much the U.S. has actually facilitated this. For example, hundreds, I think tons of DRC soldiers have been trained by the U.S., like literally here in the United States. Then you see human rights reports from last year where more than 3,600 women, children, and men have been raped. Um, Horrific sexual violence over a four-year period, victims ranging from two to 80 violent sexual crimes on villages, um, abductions, lootings. It's, it's absolutely insane, the sexual violence being used as a tool. Militarism is one of the reasons these uh, atrocities take place. I mean, we, we see that here. Uh, we saw that with American soldiers in Iraq, uh, in Okinawa. Uh, anytime you see militarism around, you will see these type of atrocities. And there is no accountability when it comes to our allies, right? They can do yeah. these crimes and we're not going to hold them accountable. We provide them with the gears and the weapons. Uh, we teach them how to do these things and no one is held accountable. Um, thanks for bringing us back to even for people to get the reality because people will listen to this and say, okay, this is another African story. It's not just another African story. I mean, this is one of the most important African country. Uh, it's the only African country with nine bordering nations. So whatever happens in the Congo affects the whole African continent faster than any other African country. Six million people have died there. You know, um, when I heard six million growing up in the U.S., it was around the Holocaust. The whole entire war, world went to war to stop the Holocaust. I don't see the entire world stopping what's happening in the Congo. And then with the six million deaths in the Congo, half of them were children under the age of five. And you start asking yourself, I mean, are we looking at Africans, are Congolese as human beings? Are they our brothers and sisters? I mean, uh, should we share names of those who have died to get people to see why it's important to stop it? Um, and, And that's been the biggest challenge of how to convey that this is not a faraway problem, that I grew up in that country I did not grow up to be a refugee. I was growing up thinking that when I graduate from college, I'm going to go to law school and become a lawyer in the Congo. 
U.S. foreign policy displaced me to this country. Someone in Washington said that Congo is too rich for its own, that we need coltan. And coltan is a mineral used in our electronic devices from your cell phone or laptop, your DVD player, VCR. Say, well, everyone wants the new PlayStation. We have to get access to these resources. Destabilizing a country provides the resources at a very cheap price. Why not create disaster capitalism and make sure that we have access to Congo's resources? That's what to happen uh, in the heart of Africa, in the Congo. Uh, it shouldn't happen anywhere else. And, and, and that's what we're fighting for. We're fighting for people to know this is not a problem caused by the Congolese. Congolese didn't invade another country. They didn't bomb another country. They didn't assault anyone. They are catching hell every day for what they have under the ground. Um, as Americans or people of goodwill around the world, we have a responsibility for our fellow humans who are affected by the policy of our government here in the United States. That if our government is taking decisions on our behalf to send drones from Nevada to go bomb kids in Pakistan using Congo's cobalt, we should hold them accountable for it. We should stop these pro uh, programs. Don't say it's too hard to do, because we've done it before. You know, I just uh, moved to Chicago. I was learning about May Day, uh, you know, why do we even have May Day, uh, how it happened, people rose up. You know, when we either think about apartheid, people also rose up. So whenever we allow the government to continue to do things on our behalf, we are leaving a dictatorship, but we don't realize it. We just think the dictatorship is in Africa. It's also happening here in the United States. Let's talk about um, the refugee crisis, of course, and what the U.S. is doing to facilitate that as well. Like, I mean, you just said that there's an enormous amount of um, Congolese refugees that are about to come. You, of course, yourself came in 1998 with your family as a refugee. You you took a job at McDonald's. You got an award for, for the lowest paid job there, which is incredible. Talk about how you kind of came to this realization that there is this like broader connection to slavery and how it connects to the African-American culture and, and past in this country. The migrant story is a powerful story that people should know because sometimes we provide judgment. We have judgment about immigrants. You know, why are they here? How did they get here? Uh, many are here not by choice. Uh, it's because the countries have wars, uh, some of the wars, uh, most of the wars, uh, supported and funded uh, by the U.S., caused by the U.S., U.S. foreign policy, and so on. And then they found themselves ending up here, you know, looking at Somalis, you know. Mm -hmm. We've polluted the water with our waste. Uh, we've armed uh, radical groups to topple um, Gaddafi, and now they're using these weapons in the whole region. Uh, we're wondering why Boko Haram is doing what it's doing. Why, where did they get the weapons? Um, so we see all these things, and we end. Many Africans end up coming here uh, as migrants. You know, as you no know, speaking for myself, coming here, never worked before. I have a job at McDonald's, getting paid five fifteen. I'm very happy. I can buy. You know, CDs, uh, boombox, jeans called Wrangler, you know, <laughs> and then uh, I'm saying, oh, wow, I'm living the American dream, <laughs> you know, I never had a check like this before. And then I'm wondering why my P 
peers, uh, my colleagues are not working as hard as me. I'm working 50 hours a week. Uh, they work 20, 30, and you know, don't want to do overtime. I'm like, man, overtime, double the pay. No, I'm being five, and now I'm getting maybe eight or so on. So um, start having this perception that, you know, these people are not working really hard. You know, they're taking America for granted. Um, then uh, you start getting those small promotions. They give you the store keys, and you think you're the boss, a manager at McDonald's. And um, until one day it hit me uh, when I was going to North Carolina A&T State University. Uh, it's an HBCU out of uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, which has a long history in the civil rights movement. Uh, the sit-in movement started by, by four anti students uh, who went downtown to Woolworth uh, restaurant and sat down, uh, demanding to be served as uh, blacks. So the, the school has that history of... Um, social justice and it affected me and I started learning more about the African American experience and I started asking myself why did I work so hard where there was always this big economic gap that I could ne never close no matter how hard I worked it's a myth to actually believe by you working hard in this country that you will close the gap between you and the Rockefellers, who have 200 years advance on you with all the wealth they have made with slavery, right? So uh, that, that became very clear to me also in understanding how in the plantation that you get as many cotton as you want, you still get, well, you don't get free if you bring more, if you bring less. So why help the slave master become richer? It's like you're contributing to the system of oppressing more and more people. So there, there became this habit of you know, singing the spirituals and working and providing just enough to not allow the master to have more resources than you will have. Uh, that stayed from generation to generation that it became very clear to me when he clicked in my head. I said, wait a minute. You are getting a salary of five, 15 an hour. You get that low. You're getting that salary and you think that you are better than anyone? No, you are only fueling the capitalistic system that exists here that gets the rich richer and you at your McDonald's, you still part of the means uh, of the production line, and you have no effect ever to changing the society. And, and for me, that's what I've been sharing with uh, my African friends who come to this country, is as you come, uh, you should know that those who are here in the belly of the beast, they've been here for centuries, they know what the system is, that we should learn from them. And as we learn from them, that will help us in dealing with the World Bank and the IMF and all these neoliberal institutions um, that comes to the continent telling us this is the way we should do it. I said, well, it didn't work in the United States. Why you want it to work here? 
So it's almost become another refugee industrial complex where the system's exploiting the refugees, bringing them here, dropping them off in random as fuck places like, you know, Brigham or <laughs> Brigham, like Salt Lake City or North Carolina or, or different places that and then just, you know, putting them in the workforce and, and expecting them to be grateful and never complaining about their status or um, facilitation of basically broader and modern day slavery here. Um Obviously, this entire self-determination battle of the people in the Congo will come and start with us stopping. I talked to someone the other day about, you know, I always ask people, and I've asked you every time you've been on my show, Kambali, like, what can we do to help bring self-determination to the people of the Congo? And this guy was just like, we don't need your help. We just need you to stop supporting brutal dictators. We need you to stop what you're doing. We liberty cannot be given. It can only be won. We can't. You can't just give us freedom. Just stop and let us evolve on our own. And I think that that was really the most hard hitting thing that brought me a lot of insight. Um, so, Kambali, what resources? And if you have anything to add, please. Um, and what resources can people go um, to learn more to help out friends of the Congo? Uh, what do you got going on now? How can people get in touch with you? Friendsofcongo.org is our website. We provide analysis about the situation. People can get engaged throughout the year. Congo Live, I have now a radio show uh, called Congo Live. Uh, so that's congolive.org, uh, providing analysis also on the radio uh, for people to also know. Um, the most important thing, I think you already said it. You know, it's redundant for me to repeat it. Uh, you want to bring democracy to the Congo, to Africa? Bring democracy here. Right, have leaders in this country who represent the will, the interests of the American people. That's very important. Uh, we get caught up in thinking that the only choice we have right now is Hillary Clinton. Um, and it's been polarizing for me to share with people that you shouldn't vote because she's a woman. Right. Like, think about what policies uh, she's going to implement. Look at her record as Secretary of State before you say, Wow, we should have Hillary Clinton running against the other monarchy, the Jeb Bush, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> yeah. So it's this whole um, discussion about citizenry. Um, citizenry has stopped in this uh, this country. Is it need to be revived? Uh, people have to believe that someone like Choko Lumumba can become a mayor of Jackson, Mississippi. If he did it, God bless his soul, he's not with us anymore. You can do it too. Let's bring leaders who really represent us to change this country. That will stop the drone war. That will stop the drug war in this country. That will stop the invasions that we have when we know that if this person becomes the leader of this country, I can hold him accountable, and he will stop doing what he's doing. Right now, that's not the case, and that will be the biggest help. And of course, you know, I already share friendsofcongo.org, congolive.org. Kambale Musavule, I'm so happy that you're my brother in this global struggle that we're fighting, and uh, you're just an incredible man, and you are so inspirational to me, and I'm sure thousands of people around the world, man, keep fighting. 